This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Ideas. This is Greg Soden. You may have a feeling that the world is speeding up every year, that human beings are finding ever more ways to distract themselves from never-ending streams of chaos, that we are losing touch with each other, losing many of the relational characteristics that make us human in the first place. I'm sure many of you are guilty of some of these things. I certainly am, without a doubt. I linger on my Washington Post app about half hour more per day than I should. I try to get engagements with the Classical Ideas Twitter account much more than I should. And I find myself struggling to focus on my job when the sugar-coated windows of Facebook Instagram, and more are accessible if I just click File, New Tab. So what to do? I think about this problem a lot, and I don't really know if I'm doing any better at reversing any of these trends that I notice in my own personal behavior. But I like to think about it. I'm reading a book right now called Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and the planet. The author is Deborah Eden Tull. This book really is a handbook. It's big and filled to the brim with personal anecdotes, social observations, personal tests where you can evaluate your own relationships and notice your own struggles more clearly. This book is wonderful, and... Environmental activist and Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy states with a little blurb right on the front cover that this is a, quote, a marvel of a book. And I concur. This book is filled with fantastic exercises for challenging one to assess the power of each day for the rest of your life. But it will not be easy because there are a million and one challenges standing in our way with every scroll channel change, and notification. So my guest today is Deborah Eden Tull. Deborah Eden Tull is the founder of Mindful Living Revolution. She is a Zen meditation and mindfulness teacher, public speaker, author, activist, and sustainability educator. She trained for seven years as a Buddhist monk at a silent Zen monastery in Northern California, And she has been traveling to living in or teaching about conscious, sustainable communities internationally for the last 25 years. She is the author of two books, The Natural Kitchen, which came out in 2010, and the 2018 brand new edition, Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and the planet, which is out now from Wisdom Publications. She lives in North Carolina and offers retreats, workshops, and consultations nationally. So without further delay, 
Here is my conversation with Deborah Eden Tull, author of Relational Mindfulness. Thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm wondering if you can spend just a moment to introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Sure. I am a teacher of Zen meditation and mindfulness. I am the founder of a nonprofit called Mindful Living Revolution, and I also teach a field of work called The Work That Reconnects, which was created by Dharma teacher and eco-philosopher Joanna Macy. I was a sustainability consultant for many years, and I still weave teachings on sustainability and regenerative living into every teaching on meditation. Fantastic. I did notice that's a recurring theme within your new book, one that I really enjoyed because they're topics that I kind of try to weave into all aspects of my life as well. So you have just finished a sort of a long retreat of teaching. So you and I have emailed back and forth with each other for about the last month, and it seems like the whole time you were on retreat. Is that right? Yes, I was just on a month-long teaching trip. So I led two retreats in Northern California and a retreat in Colorado. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so um, what are some of your favorite parts about your teaching life? Because it seems like you have multiple hats, like you have your nonprofits, you have your writing life, and you have your teaching life. Uh, And I'm a teacher as well, so that's something I'm keen to discuss. So what do you love about your teaching life? Yeah, I... I truly love everything about teaching. Uh, there's a quote that's always resonated with me by Mark Van Doren that says, the art of teaching is the art of assisting discovery. And I love being in the role of pointing people to uh, Dharma, pointing people to presence, helping people to open their mind's perception. and helping people to find their own way of getting there. What are the obstacles that they're facing? What are the conditioned beliefs, the limiting perceptions that they're ready to let go of? Uh, Assisting people in doing that is uh, an incredibly uh, joyful endeavor. I feel very lucky because I get to witness people's transformation every single day of my life, quite honestly. Even when I'm not leading retreats, I'm often working with people one-on-one or in groups and couples, uh, helping to do this work of compassionate awareness. And so, uh, again, I feel very lucky. I'll also say that it's just uh, an honor to get to spend time often on retreat, uh, getting to unplug from uh, the world of doing, of distraction, of busyness, uh, to get to spend deep time in nature and in, for me, the mode of what is most important. So thanks for that question. Yeah. Do you, um, so one of the things I've always been curious about is I know what it feels like for me to get up in front of a classroom full of young people and the nerves that come along with it. And I've always been curious with, um, you know, various spiritual teachers that I've spoken to, if you get nervous, like leading these long retreats and being like sort of in charge of people's practice, like how does that feel? Like what is the, what are the nerves like on your end of teaching? Yeah, you know, it's interesting for me. I would say I probably get more nervous when I'm giving just a public talk to a brand new audience or doing something that kind of grows an edge for me that feels a little scary um, in my teaching work. Leading retreat 
feels a lot less uh, anxiety producing to me. It's something I've been doing for a long time. I have such deep trust in the practice and in the space, the container that gets created on retreat. And then really part of my job is to, to get out of the way. Um, when I was first invited uh, to begin teaching, I was really scared. I didn't feel ready and I remember just having a moment of realizing, oh, wow, this, this part of me is really scared. Uh, she's not the one who's <laughs> going to be teaching. I remember just kind of visualizing setting her on my lap, getting up on the meditation cushion, and uh, allowing the teacher to come through, <laughs> the part of me with larger perspective and presence. And so uh, whenever I do meet, let's say, a new audience giving a public talk, perhaps, where there's a little anxiety, I tend to name it right up front, just so I can uh, walk my talk, which has to do with transparency mm-hmm. and relational mindfulness. And then that also helps it to dissipate, just to keep things real, right? Right. Do yeah. you have Do you have like a home sangha, or do you mostly get like invited to like uh, speak with different sanghas? Well, uh, I had a home sangha for a long time, but my partner and I moved just about a year ago from California to North Carolina, and we still feel really new here. So Mm. we're still just getting settled. So I've been traveling and teaching a lot. Uh, My sangha that I've had for many years is really um, mostly remote now. We meet regularly uh, and we meet once a month but it's remote and at first I had resistance to that I thought can you really connect as intimately uh, online and I find that we can interesting (laughs) I also look forward to uh, grounding myself here more yeah yeah I I can understand that uh, that disjointed feeling um, of moving I just moved from Missouri to western New York and Mm -hmm. It was a, you know, a really jarring experience to go from place to place. So I kind of know what it feels like to have that feeling of being out of place right this very second when we're having this conversation. Yes. And you're describing a shift that's as dramatic as going from California to North Carolina. Very different consciousness in each place. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Do you ever work with uh, like young high school aged people in your retreats um, at all? Yes, um, I have done work with teens uh, regularly over the years, uh, in particular through an amazing program called Sustainable Life that's for uh, teens who have been in foster care run by uh, an amazing organic restaurant uh, chain called Tender Greens. So I have done a lot of work with teens over the years. What do you what are you noticing about what youth today like most want whenever they're checking out um, like Buddhist practice or Zen practice or just meditation in general? Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind uh, for me is uh, deep listening. You know, in meditation, we're learning how to listen more deeply, both within to ourselves, and we're also getting to experience a space of deep listening to one another. That's actually something we practice on many retreats. And I find that young people in particular are so hungry for this. They're so hungry to kind of learn how to do that or be given permission to do that with one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're so hungry to be listened to. I firmly believe that if more young people, in fact, 
everyone could benefit. Uh, but if more young people had uh, deep listeners in their life, people who were willing to listen without judgment, without agenda, without trying to solve or fix or change them, uh, they would get to um, grow into their themselves with much more peace and acceptance. You know, that's so interesting because um, in my religious studies class that I taught in high school back in Missouri, there was, uh, I had a lot of guest speakers come in. And so like if there were, if you lived in my town, I probably would have invited you to come in and talk to my class. And a man came in and he represented a Theravadan Buddhist group and they were asking about exercises that, you know, they like to do in the Sangha. And he's like, well, we can do one right now. And it was called the exercise of the repeating question where two students just would look at each other and they would just repeat the question, who are you? Who are you? And yes. every time the answer would get deeper and deeper and deeper. And these students had this unbelievable experience of being able to fully express themselves and to be fully listened to. So that's such a powerful experience. Yes. And just that exercise that you're describing, the repeating sentences, is one that I offer in the book on relational mindfulness. So there are both formal practices and informal practices, but it's a beautiful practice for entering a very intimate uh, space of inquiry together. That's a spectacular segue to talk about your big, beautiful, expansive book, Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and the planet. So what was your impetus for writing such a thorough book, which touches on so many amazing topics? You know, I'll, I'll go back in time a bit. Uh, I'll share that I grew up in the city of Los Angeles in a family of activists and artists. Um, I witnessed through my parents' work a lot um, in terms of social injustice and just at a young age had a real desire to be of service in the world. And when I went out um, to find the people I wanted to learn from, the field that I became most passionate about was sustainability. This was all around the same time I was learning to meditate. I became aware that even in getting the opportunity to work for uh, some of my heroes and for people who were doing really good, really needed work in the world, uh, there were certain patterns of burnout, of uh, competition and judgment, uh, finger pointing, uh, drama, <laughs> even in the world of change agents. And I knew that there had to be a, a better way uh, a way to be of even more contribution to the world. And so at a young age, about the age of 26, um, I decided to let go of what I had been doing and become a Zen Buddhist monk for the next seven and a half years, though I didn't know at that point how long it would be. And a big part of my training really helped me to integrate uh, personal meditation practice with the interpersonal, transpersonal, um, perhaps global effects of presence and compassionate awareness of the teachings. When I was living as a monk, I uh, didn't know, but I contracted Lyme from uh, tick bite. And so I became a bit ill and needed to go spend some time back in LA where my family was. We thought just a few months so I could heal. And in that time, I really had a strong, clear heart calling that I had been so incredibly lucky in my training and what I had received 
that it was the moment to be out in the wild and messy megatropolis of Los Angeles mm. and teach. And in that time, um, I realized very quickly that my students and also myself, as I had just moved from a silent Zen monastery to Los Angeles, <laughs> needed much more of a clear bridge um, between the teachings, the qualities we learn to develop on the meditation cushion, and how we engage and relate with one another, uh, how we approach socializing, how we approach workplace conflict, how we approach uh, love relationship, all of it. And so the idea for this book was kind of seeded then. And the book is written in four sections, relationship with ourself, relationship with each other, relationship with our planet, and also relationship with um, global uncertainty. So what does, what does the concept of relational mindfulness mean for listeners, like if somebody's considering checking out the book? Sure. So relational mindfulness uh, is a set of practices and principles, nine principles, that help us to use the field of human relationship, uh, be it just our casual daily interactions or our long-term established relationships for awakening. So many people have some kind of, uh, I would say, distorted duality between like meditation, where I'm finding my personal peace, and then how I engage in the world and how I relate. And there is no uh, separation between those two. And so it's uh, really an, the offering of a bridge between the two. Okay, so the nine principles that you describe in the book, do you have any favorites um, or a favorite per se? You know, I do. And uh, I think I'll, I'll give a little bit of um, background on each of them. But my favorite is probably deep listening, which I already mentioned. We can think of meditation itself as uh, learning to listen to life as it unfolds moment by moment. And many people, not only are they missing a relation, relationships with others where they feel truly deeply listened to, but they don't necessarily have that relationship with themselves of a compassionate, accepting, constant presence. And that is something we develop through meditation. Uh, I think of shallow listening as just kind of listening to and believing our superficial thoughts, uh, the conditioned mind, the mind of separation, as I talk about it, and deep listening as dropping into more full presence and listening from that place where we can be aware of superficial thoughts, but we're not um, bound by them. And so actually the word listen comes from the root to obey. And a lot of people are just going around obeying um, their thoughts as taking their thoughts as authority rather than finding out and getting to know uh, the authority within, which comes from being present. So deep listening is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'll name the others very briefly. Intention. And this simply means to always be clear in our intention. Um, as we're relating with one another, knowing that ego or separate self is pretty clear in its intention, generally to separate. So even when we're socializing with someone, we might notice a little agenda of seeking approval or and wanting to be liked, wanting to be right, um, wanting attention. <laughs> Those kinds of things get in the way of genuine connection. The next is deep listening, which I've spoken about. 
the mindful pause, and this is really, really important. I believe that intimacy and real connection comes through spaciousness, through dropping into more presence together. And if we pause before, during, and after our interactions, if we learn to slow down and make sure we're staying connected within as we engage with one another, uh, a lot um, of beauty can happen in the field of connection. Mindful inquiry and clear seeing are the next. And this points to a practice of, as we notice superficial thoughts that might separate uh, us from the interconnection that's actually our birthright that's available, we simply can question. Uh, mindful inquiry begins with, uh, is this true? How do I know this is true? Is this essential? <laughs> is what I'm being told by my thoughts right now actually worth my energy and mm. attention? And so I just let a six-day retreat on mindful inquiry. It's a big topic, but just to mention it right now. Right. The next is transparency. And transparency is where the practice of relational mindfulness goes from more our receptive side to more of our expressive side, just learning how to embody present moment honesty. It's terrifying for a lot of people. A lot of people um, wear masks at times that uh, block their vulnerability from being seen, uh, block them from being seen as they are, uh, cause disruption in the field of connection. So transparency. The next is not taking personally. Uh, we take so much personally from something someone else said to the weather, quite honestly. Yeah. So really taking on the practice of not taking personally and seeing what that opens up. Uh, taking responsibility is the next, and there's a lot I could say about that, but just being more aware of the triggers that come up in the field of human relationship being opportunities for us. And turning towards rather than away. Um, and the final one is compassionate action. So nine principles that uh, both individually and together offer us incredible clarity <laughs> and opportunity to wake up through well, how we engage. Yeah, go on. And what's so interesting about all of those is that in the book, at the end of each chapter, you have these fantastic um, mindful inquiry practices and daily practices where people can investigate each one of these, each one of these principles for themselves. Yes, I learn a lot through uh, experience, and that's how I teach. And I really wanted to offer a book that's not just digest this, <laughs> right. but look at it for yourself. See how what I'm pointing to really speaks to your own life and let this help you grow. One of my favorite things about the book is how much you have in there about being busy <laughs> and, and the expectations that our society has placed on all of us to keep like a frantic momentum in our lives and if we're not doing more we are somehow failures so like so many times I'll be like filling out tons of paperwork or waiting in traffic and I'll find myself thinking like I can't believe this is how we're living our lives and your journey led you to being a silent monk for over seven years as you mentioned 
and you're not silent now. So how are those years that you were silent uh, still impacting your life? Um, and what do they still teach you, even though you're surrounded by busyness? Sure. Yeah. Well, they, they teach me every day. My experience is that once you train in a monastery, you internalize the monastery. The monastery is within, we could say. And even before I lived as a monk, I spent many years living off the grid in sustainable community uh, in eco-villages. That's something that was important to me, seeing uh, in what other contexts human beings could live more harmoniously with ourselves and with the planet. So there's a lot that I uh, have in place in my life these days and a lot of ways that I hold myself accountable. Living in LA for a while, though I no longer live there, was uh, a helpful teacher in terms of seeing some of the ways that I too could get seduced by the glamorization of busyness. And so one of the ways I work with this now is I'm always very clear about uh, what is this the season for and what is it not. I was an organic gardener, farmer for many years, and that's an important question, just to not expect ourselves to be giving our attention to everything at once, but to be very clear about what is most important now that I'm giving my energy to and what is not. To have practices, as I mentioned the pause earlier in our conversation, of pausing throughout our day to really make sure we're uh, staying attuned with our own authentic pace <laughs> and um, also not getting pulled off by conditioned beliefs. I think a lot of the busyness of the world and a lot of what happens when people get uh, caught up in stress and busyness has to do with what belief systems they're entertaining. And there's such a strong message in our world. Um, this is one of the signposts of the conditioned mind. There's something wrong. There's not enough. There's something I've got to do. And I think those three messages take people quite regularly uh, away from their authentic pace and away from well-being, uh, away from a peaceful, grounded life that they could be cultivating otherwise. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, as I read books like yours, um, people in my life spring to mind. I think about people that are always on the go, people that are super fidgety, people that are very loud, people <laughs> that are very busy. And you wish for every person to have a 10-day retreat. Tell me what would this mean for these types of people, like if they could have this experience that you wish for them on retreat? Sure. So for the most fidgety one, uh, the loudest one, you know, retreat uh, offers an incredible mirror, a very clear mirror. And it also offers the wisdom of no escape. In our world today, Human beings have more ways to escape discomfort uh, than we have ever had at any other point in history. Everything from uh, food and drink and substances and addictions to the internet and social media and phone calls, whatever it is. And the kindness that one actually gets to experience when 
we have no escape. We're just invited in silence and stillness to be with ourselves, to meet ourselves, to face ourselves. And then we get to see, well, what's actually underneath this fidgetiness that in daily life I just uh, kind of assume is who I am. Part of the learning in a meditation practice is about a case of mistaken identity that we kind of get very caught thinking that we are, uh, we could say, our small self. Uh, these identities that we create and give a lot of energy to maintaining. But we're much, much more than that. So on retreat, we get to uh, drop some of that and see what's underneath, <laughs> see what else is available to us. It's a relief. And I'd imagine that you know all those people that I just mentioned in your own way. <laughs> I do. Yeah. yeah. So in the book, you mentioned that a lot of this was uh, motivated by the feelings of despair that you had about the world and the future of the world, like from a very young age. And your book has many strategies for helping people kind of like dig out of despair almost in a way. So like on page one, you said, if you, the reader, are feeling drained by the state of the world... And I just stopped there and I wrote a big Y-E-S in the margin of the page. So <laughs> so I agree. Um, what are your favorite ways to sort of like feel less despair in an era when all of the news seems to be bad? Sure, sure. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, that which we resist persists. And when I was just talking about um, the medicine of learning to not turn away from our experience, but to actually turn towards and be with it. That's, that's my number one um, encouragement for everyone. I feel like I've gotten the opportunity to, when I guide people through this, spend good time um, in conscious spaces uh, grieving the loss of living systems on our planet that has already occurred. And grief is a really necessary and important step, I believe, for everyone. The pushing down or numbing out or jumping to a place of uh, everything's okay, as well as the going to reactive places of just finger pointing or doom and gloom. Those are all reactions to uh, difficult circumstances. Grief, in my experience, consciously grieving, actually allows us to get to a place of more healing in relationship with it. And then I'll also say that making sure our own life, our own lifestyle is aligned with what feels uh, wholesome, uh, what feels uh, healing to us is really, really important. Also paying attention to how much of that bad news we're, we're taking in because alongside of it, there's an incredible amount of good news, of heroic, amazing things happening on the planet every single day. But that's not what we tend to get to hear, right? Right. Um, do you have any sort of like rules for overconsumption that you sort of adhere to? Like, what's your relationship to things like news and social media? Like, how do you navigate that? Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm pretty conservative with that in the way of I have a lot of rules <laughs> for myself. I find that uh, not going online at all uh, until, of course, after my full morning practice and 
not going on in the evening at all. It's kind of just too much for the nervous system. Having regular days, um, this is a committed practice of fasting from uh, media, news, and being online as well. Um, being aware of who's here. This is a basic Zen inquiry, but asking ourselves who's here internally before we turn on the news to listen. So we know, am I present and centered and ready to take in information? Or is this a moment when I'm actually feeling um, uh, under-resourced or fragile or whatever? Probably wouldn't be a good moment. So self-awareness as we take in the news, self-awareness um, opens up the space for being more discerning in every aspect of life, every aspect of consumption about what do I choose to take in and what do I not? Uh, because our priority in practice is uh, well-being and wakefulness and being compassionate with ourselves as we navigate what's challenging out there. So, so, and so much of the book is about like relationships between people as well. And there's another concept in the book that we haven't really touched on yet. And that is the illusion of separation. So what is this illusion of separation and how, if it does, how does it make our collective lives sort of worse as human beings? Sure. Well, when I look around um, and I started making this connection as a young person at all of the isms uh, we face as a species, at all of the both sustainability and social justice issues, I see the illusion of separation uh, at the root of all of our suffering. Um, we get to learn through a meditation practice that uh, we are not separate. We are not separate from any form of life uh, on this planet. And yet there's an illusion, a distorted belief uh, that tends to be popular in our world. We experience this myth of separation, I would say, and I'm going to talk about the mind of separation for a moment, which is synonymous with the conditioned mind, just kind of the beliefs and um, uh, habitual thoughts that have been conditioned by society, maybe family, maybe religion. But the conditioned mind tends to literally cause separation within ourself. We can be engaging in an activity that might seem peaceful, like yoga, while berating ourselves or assessing, judging our performance. We can be engaging with another human being, uh, listening, but half of our attention can be on the mind of separation, feeling self-conscious or wondering what we're going to say when it's our turn or <laughs> thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. It certainly disconnects us from the natural world. Uh, we're not available unless we're present. Uh, for the interconnection that I would say is who we really are. So speaking of that, like internal berating of ourselves, I think this is something that a lot of people can really um, put themselves in, in those shoes because I think that a lot of people do that to themselves all day, every day. And so much of our internal monologue standards that we set for ourselves are kind of like made up. Right. Isn't that something that you, you yeah. kind of talked about in the book? 
this is what I mean, conditioned by society, mm. media, perhaps religion or family, but made up, not inherently true. Yes. So <laughs> do you have any sort of like made up standards that you're like holding yourself to or that you're trying to like work through kind of like right now in your life? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I'll give a, a really simple example. Today is a day when I woke up um, feeling particularly underslept. And in my past, uh, that could have given rise to a number of limiting beliefs and also conditioned uh, standards like, oh, no, you're not going to be able to perform as well today. And oh, no, you're not going to be able to get done everything that you have to get done or just, oh, no, there's something um, inherently uh, worse about low energy than high energy. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. And really, you know, luckily through practice, we it's a daily practice of getting to see through distortion to what is actually true. <laughs> and luckily, I got to today simply welcome, oh, what, what could be labeled low energy, but uh, doesn't need even that label. Uh, my experience of, of low energy is actually that it does not in any way get in the way of uh, inner vision or clear seeing. Um, performance isn't something I hold myself to in a way that maybe I used to in my past, right? Mm -hmm. I don't carry a belief system that says uh, I am lovable based on what I do or achieve. And a lot of human beings do before they come to practice, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's a good example because I, I do that too as well with rest. And if I feel like I've just gotten less than what I need, then I just feel like the whole entire day is totally ruined from the start. <laughs> right, right. I think that's very popular in our culture, just like uh, you know, extroversion and big energy are considered better somehow than introversion or quiet or low energy. So speaking of waking up, um, on page 42, you have a great quote that says, this is perhaps our best moment in time to wake up. Given that life will not last forever, why wait? So I have a question for you. Um, how will you do your best to honor this quote as you go through the rest of today after you get off the phone with me? That is a fabulous question. Thank you. Um, you know, I began the day with my practices, with the practices that I do every day and in the evening. And I also got to take a, a long walk in the woods. That is the place that always helps me to remember. Throughout the day, as I go through my day, there's a just continual awareness and questioning around um, what is essential, what is essential to my heart, and what is not. And really having a commitment to simplicity and what is of essence, what is essential, mm -hmm. and simply being discerning, not allowing for uh, the thoughts, the um, distractions, the things that lead uh, towards suffering rather than away from suffering. So there's a lot uh, in my life that helps to support me uh, remembering that who we really are is love and that whatever 
comes along in our day or in our path can just be experienced as a, a teacher of love if we allow it to. Does that make sense? Sure does. And, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. thinking of a, a few times you've mentioned like some of your daily routines. And I'd imagine a few listeners would be asking, what does Deborah Edenthal do as a morning practice? Like, what is your morning routine like as far as your Zen practice goes? Sure. Yeah. So uh, each morning and each uh, evening, I practice sitting meditation. It's the first thing that my partner and I do when we do together when we get out of bed. Uh, for me, there's something really important about it being the first thing, just to wake up and sit. And uh, sometimes I sit at other times in the day. I also have um, movement practice. Just conscious and mindful movement is important for me every day, really taking care of the body in a, a wakeful way. And I'll also share that um, shamanism uh, has been part of my path for um quite a long time. And so there's a shamanic practice that I do every day as well that simply helps me connect more to uh, the invisible realm, acknowledging that as when I look around at our world right now and I see what we're up against uh, as individuals, just how challenging it is being human and being a change agent with what we're working with collectively, well, which is a lot right now. We need to call upon all supports. We need to be really solid in our inner support, how to meet life from center. And we need to call upon support um, from what I'm speaking to right now from uh, realms that are not so visible. And so that's part of my work as well. Cool. What are some of your, what are some of your personal goals for your practice in the coming years? Hmm, that's a, a good question. I love that Zen is based in simplicity and compassion. And so just an ever continual deepening for me of simplicity and compassion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also uh, I'm working on another book that is about uh, letting go of fear in the age of climate change. And so that's been giving me some great things to look at in my own practice. Um which I feel like is uh, something all of my students, everyone I'm working with is becoming more conscious of as well, as well. And then simply along the lines of what I was just speaking about, um, you know, the more we get out of the way, the more we let go of this kind of self-centered um, bubble, this reference to me and um, my issues and, all the ways I need self-improvement and this kind of self-referencing bubble, the more that dissolves, the more we're available to the field of interconnection with all that is and to simply being of service where it is needed. So that's a continual part of my intention. And, you know, I'll also just add in uh, joy. Really, you asked me earlier about what we can be doing uh, in light of uh, it being a difficult time, a dark time, and um, committing to joy, being <laughs> joy, um, living from joy. That's really a big part of the medicine. 
that's good advice for me to even take in right now. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going through these big transitions in my life. So that's just really helpful for me to hear as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your, your podcast? I know you have a podcast also. Maybe sure. Maybe you want to tell people about it so they can check it out. Yeah, yeah. So my website is com. It's my full name. And I offer uh, regular talks most recently on all the different nuances in this area of relational mindfulness. And I also offer a whole bunch of Dharma talks uh, from retreats, from public talks, sometimes simply on topics that students reach out to me saying, hey, can you please offer some wisdom, some perspective on this? And so I also sometimes offer uh, written blogs, and that's all there available on my website. Very good. Well, Deb Reedenthal, I really appreciate you taking an hour out of your time to talk to me about your practice, about your life, about your new book, Relational Mindfulness, out now from Wisdom Publications. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure talking with you, too. Thank you so much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.